consecration for the hours and the time you've put in preparation. Thank you for being my friend. I love you and I honor you, and we want you to obey the Lord tonight. God bless you. Well, why don't you give the Lord a hand clap of praise? Hallelujah. God, we love you. We worship you. We bless your wonderful name, Jesus. We thank you for your awesome presence that we feel in this house. Amen. I want to take just a moment and say uh, thank you to Brother Townley for his vision for this men's conference. Uh, it's already been said, but uh, what a tremendous vision uh, to strengthen the hands of our men. Amen. The priest of our homes, the leaders of our families. Others who are, we're living in a day when broken families are coming into the church and they're looking for men. Their fathers have let them down, disappointed them, and they're looking for men that know what it means to be a leader. And uh, I'm looking at those kind of men tonight. So thank you, Brother Townley, for your vision, the invitation to come, and all the hospitality, uh, the food, the hotel, the basket. And I've enjoyed myself thoroughly already and have been blessed by the presence of the Lord that's in this place. Amen. Your soul, I feel, has already been fed, touched, and strengthened by the presence of God that's in this house. It's an honor to share this pulpit with Brother Fox and Brother Copeland. Looking forward to their ministry tomorrow, and I know that they're going to deliver a great word to us and strengthen us. Amen. And it's an honor to stand before such great men. You all. Amen. And it takes people to build a church. Amen. And I often tell our church at home that the church is not God's gift to the ministry. The ministry is God's gift to the church. His first priority is the church. Amen. And I'm thankful to be part of the church. Amen. And that's you. I'm glad to be a part of you. I don't know many of you, but I'm glad we're part of the same family. I do see a lot of friendly faces. Amen. So that makes it a little easier tonight. Hallelujah. But I trust and pray that the Holy Ghost will help us, amen, to deliver the word of the Lord. I don't want to keep you standing too long tonight, so if you have your Bibles, would like to go with us to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 9. I give honor along with Brother Townley and the leadership to all the ministers that are here, pastors and evangelists. God bless you. 1 Samuel chapter 9. I told them today when we walked through here and the aromas were already filling the building. Amen. That's a good motivation to get done. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechareth, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man 
of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul. If you'll allow me tonight, I'm just going to read that portion of verse 2. He had this mighty man of power had a son. And that son's name was Saul. Amen. I want to preach tonight for a little while with the help of the Holy Ghost something that the Lord uh, spoke into my spirit. I actually preached the seed of this message in our Father's Day service. And uh, when Brother Townley invited me to be a part of this uh, conference, uh, I felt the word of the Lord uh, in me at that moment that that was what the Lord would have. And so for several months now, it's been germinating and growing. And I want to preach to you tonight for just a little while on this subject, the influence of a man. The influence of a man. And uh, I stood amazed. I don't know why uh, I, I was amazed, but some of the things Brother Townley was already saying. Amen. Uh, were things that the Lord had put into my heart. So if you'll help us tonight, amen, we want to see what the Lord would have for us. How about it? Amen. Let's pray and ask the Holy Ghost to have his way. Lord, we thank you tonight for your spirit. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your word that is powerful. It's alive. Let it live in this place tonight. Let it accomplish the purpose of its being sent. Let it be confirmed in whatever demonstration you would so choose at the conclusion tonight. In the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. Why don't you give the Lord a hand clap of praise again before you see. God bless you and please be seated. Saul is no stranger to all of us here tonight, I'm sure. If you've been any time in and around the church, you're familiar with this character of the Bible, the first king of Israel, and all of the stories and life lessons that are found in the life of Saul. Some time ago, as I mentioned, the Lord, just in thought and in prayer, took me back to Saul. And I began to just, in my mind, walk through the life of Saul. And it came to me that Saul, as well as all of us, are not just uh, made up of who we are individually. We are made up of influences from other people. Things that we hear, people that we trust, people that have invested in our lives. And I begin to think it's often the case that uh, Saul bears uh, the brunt. And I understand uh, that he was responsible for his actions. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, when we talk about Saul, we often begin to talk about his flaws his character flaws, his spiritual flaws, his perceptive flaws. Saul was a man that had many of them. Not that he could not have been changed or helped, but he refused the man of God in his life. And uh, oftentimes we talk about 
this man Saul and uh, how that he turned his back on Samuel, how that he could not obey the word of the Lord and how that uh, he would later blatantly disobey the command of God to utterly destroy the Amalekites and uh, how that he would even go and inquire of a a medium, of one who could commune supposedly with the dead. And uh, all the things that come up in Saul's life, the evil spirits from the Lord that torment him, his murderous passion after David, and on and on it goes about this man Saul. But I begin to wonder what was it in Saul's life? How did Saul start down this road? Why did Saul not have more of a respect, more of an awe and a reverence for God and the man of God? Why was it that Saul turned out to be the kind of man that he was? Because he had all of the outward characteristics to be a mighty king. The Bible says, of course, that he was head and shoulders above uh, the rest of Israel. The Bible says that he was a choice young man and goodly. When you looked at him, you saw potential. When you looked at him, you saw a kingly characteristic of power and strength, uh, and he stood out in the crowd. He was the only giant that Israel would ever have. He was the only one who would stand tall and strong like the other giants of the other nations. He was a man's choice. If you were to choose your first king, this would be the kind of man that you would choose. And so he began, of course, his kingship and and just almost immediately, the Bible says uh, uh, that after he had been king two years, and I know there is some question about timing there, but uh, the King James says that after he had been king two years, uh, he began to lose his grip on the kingdom. It didn't take long for him to make the first wrong step. It didn't take long for him to uh, get off on the wrong path with Samuel and with God. And I hope you'll let me just take my time here tonight. Amen. And uh, so I begin to wonder, are there any indicators in Scripture of uh, what was going on in Saul's life before he was anointed king? Are there any indicators in Scripture that uh, Saul's flaws were uh, already inherent in him, that he had picked them up from somewhere else, that maybe he had been influenced uh, somewhere, somehow, uh, that he had no respect for the ministry. He had no respect for the anointing. He had no uh, feeling uh, of the weightiness of what was happening to him, what God had called him to. And so the word of the Lord took me, of course, to the beginning. And that is where our text began tonight. The Bible says that there was a man 
of Benjamin. And so that was the starting place. Uh, Benjamin. Who was Benjamin? Who was uh, the son of Jacob? Uh, I don't want to uh, belittle your concept of Scripture here tonight and imply that we know nothing. So just allow me the privilege to retell a few stories here tonight. But we know and we understand that Benjamin was the youngest son of Jacob. We know that he was the second child to his beloved Rachel. Amen. And we know that when he was born, that Rachel died. And as he was being born, she named him the son of her sorrow. But Jacob, looking at her, at him, changed his name to the son of my right hand. And so uh, I am sure as life goes on that Benjamin is told the story of how his birth came about and the events that followed. Of course, uh, he was told how that his mother lost her life uh, in bringing him into this world and how that in her last few moments she cried out his name to be the son of her sorrow uh, and how that Jacob would not let him bear that name and instead called him the son of his right hand. Uh, I don't want to imply too much here tonight, but I'm sure that those things went over in Benjamin's mind. Uh, I'm sure just because I know how life is and humanity and the adversary that Benjamin began to wonder maybe, uh, maybe it was his fault that his mother had lost her life. Uh, maybe there was something in him that wasn't right. Uh, maybe uh, he bore some of the blame. Uh, maybe he carried some of those struggles. Uh, maybe he felt like he never lived up to really his name, Benjamin, the son of my right hand, because uh, really Jacob's affection was on Benjamin's older brother, Joseph. Uh, and uh, maybe he wrestled with what it was like uh, to be the youngest child, uh, to be the one that Jacob pampered and sheltered and would not let out of his sight. Uh, and uh, maybe he grew up with a lot of these struggles uh, uh, in his own mind and his own spirit. The Bible does not really bear that out to us. Uh, but what the Bible does tell us is that when Jacob was on his deathbed, and uh, he had called all of his sons together to pronounce the blessing uh, upon them as he would pass uh, from this life. The Bible does tell us in Genesis 49 uh, that when Jacob laid his hand on Benjamin, uh, he prophesied these words. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey. And at night he shall divide the spoil. And so he sets the characteristic of what Benjamin was like. Benjamin apparently from this prophetic word was a man that never backed down from a fight. Uh, he said, you're going to raven like a wolf, amen. You're going to latch on to your adversary and you're not going to let go uh, until it's dead. Uh, you're going to creep down through.
through the ravines while your adversary walks proudly on the prairie. And just as he gets close to where you are, you're going to launch out in ambush, latch on to his throat and cut it open and watch him bleed and die and then you're going to take his prey and you're going to go back to your den and at night you're going to sit around and and mingle through all of your spoil. This is the characteristic of the prophetic word to Benjamin. You're going to be a fighter. You're going to be one who never backs down. You're going to be one who has the taste of blood. You're going to be one uh, who is not afraid to take it to the enemy that's bigger than you are. You're not going to be afraid to be belittled. You're going to stand up. And Benjamin, throughout the entirety of Scripture, has to deal with this whole idea of being the least and being the smallest and being the most insignificant and being the one that lives in the shadow of Joseph and the promises and the blessings of Jesus. Judah and all that goes on throughout the history of Scripture. Benjamin and his descendants always seem to be lurking just at the edge. Even though the Scripture talks about that Benjamin would be the center of God's passion. And Benjamin, we know, is is the tribe in which uh, uh, Jerusalem was positioned. Uh, And uh, later, Benjamin loses his complete identity as it is submerged into the identity of Judah. And, uh, and so Benjamin is a man that grows up and, and produces offspring that lives with this whole idea of being the youngest and the least. And I know enough about humanity to know that those kinds of things pass down generationally. And I'm going to try to hurry tonight, but I don't want to go too fast. And so time goes by and you move into the land of promise and you move into the time of the judges and you're not very long in the book of Judges and you come across a a judge out of the tribe of Benjamin. His name is Ehud and uh, he's a left-handed man and the Bible tells us even later that there were many left-handed Benjamites and uh, the Bible tells us that Ehud was a deliverer from the oppressors of Israel and I don't want to take time to go into that story but he was a man who was not afraid to walk right into the presence of a king with a knife on his thigh waiting for the moment to plunge that knife deep into that man's bosom. And we know that he killed the king of the oppressors against Israel and then fled and God gave them the victory. Amen. But then we travel down through the book of Judges and we discover that Benjamin along with many in Israel have have uh, gone deep, deep, deep uh, in their depravity in sin and ungodliness. Uh, we come across a story of a Levite who has recaptured uh, his concubine who has played the whore and he has settled uh, uh, for the night uh, in Gibeah and how that while in Gibeah the men, the Benjamites came to that house uh, and they wanted the man to be given to them uh, that they might ravage him and take advantage of him. Uh, it didn't take many years for
Benjamin and his descendants to go into the depths of sin and ungodliness. In fact, historians refer to it as the revival of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Benjamin is that tribe that uh, is ready to take this Levite. And there's all kind of implications uh, that we don't have time to talk about tonight. But one thing I do want to point out that shows up again in Saul is their lack of respect uh, for the man of God. The Levite has come. And he is there in their city. And instead of welcoming him, uh, they leave him by the well. And uh, instead of giving him a place to dwell, they want to ravage him and take advantage of him in a very ungodly fashion. And we know that his concubine was given to them and how that All the night long, the men took opportunity to take advantage of her. And early in the morning, she fell on the threshold of that house. And when the Levite came out, they found her dead. And how the Levite took her and cut her into 12 pieces and sent her to the tribes, those pieces to the tribes of Israel. And Israel inquired of God, shall we go up against our brother? And God said, yes. And so they came together and war ensued. You know the story that Benjamin was almost destroyed. And somehow Israel got a hold of themselves and realized there's only a few of Benjamin left. And if we're not careful, we're going to wipe out one of our brethren. And so they pulled back and all of the ladies had been killed and all of the children there was only these men and how that they restored to them wives and and so here is this small tribe of men left now just let me use my imagination a little bit life wasn't just grand and glorious for those guys There was some bitterness they had to get over. There were some real struggles that went on in their life. That they had to deal with generation after generation. What was it like to sit down at the dinner table with the next generation and say, we were almost wiped out by our brethren. We were almost destroyed by our own flesh and blood. I just want to give you a few things tonight for consideration. I'm going to try to move quickly. And so Benjamin passes down this idea of being right at the edge of the family. And many of you can relate to what that's like. Being right at the edge of being accepted. Being right at the edge of being considered grown up. Part of the group. Right at the edge and then all of a sudden they're almost destroyed. And so now, already being the smallest tribe, now they are almost insignificant. And so time goes by and we arrive at our text. What's it mean to be a Benjamite? It means that you have a history that is not something you want to talk about. It means that sewed into the fabric of your ancestors is this disrespect and this uh, almost ignoring 
the man of God. Almost as if that it has no place of preeminence in your life. And so it means something to be a Benjamite. When the Bible says that he was a Benjamite and his name was Kish, that means something. It's not just there to tell you what his lineage was, but it's there also to remind us of what it means to be a Benjamite. And so here was a man named Kish. And the Bible says that he was a mighty man of power. That means he was a man of influence. He was a man of wealth. He was a man of importance. He was a man that when he spoke in the tribe of Benjamin, people listened to what he was saying. When Kish would would recommend or give advice, then he would be taken note of and they would listen to him. He was a man of power, a man of influence. And so his words took power. His his actions influenced others because you don't have to put any effort into being an influence. You just live your life. And people who are around you will begin to pick up what is important to you. They will begin to pick up Uh, your passions uh, and your desires uh, and what you think about this uh, by how you treat it uh, and how you approach it uh, and how you act around it. uh, And they'll understand that over here uh, you don't care for this very much because you never talk about it. uh, You never lift it up. uh, You never uh, encourage anybody else to get involved with it or be a part of it. uh, But over here uh, you're you're really talking about this uh, and you're showing everybody this uh, and you're training everybody about this and though you're not necessarily doing it to influence those people it is influencing them toward what is important to you now this is where I believe that we pick up the telltale signs of who Saul became because in just a few short verses we are given the influence of this mighty man of power on his son Saul the Bible says that this son Saul was a choice young man he was goodly he was higher than any of the people by head and shoulders but we pick up in Saul this insecurity that he wasn't good enough that he wasn't well enough even though he was handsome and even though he was of a stately nature evidently that he never received from Kish the idea that you can be something son that you can really accomplish something God's favored you God's given you the ability and the strength to stand out and be a leader among the people oh no because as soon as he's anointed He runs and he hides because he's not used to the voice of the man of God. And he's not used to the anointing of the oil that is still upon his head and upon his clothes. And so that insecurity of how Kish treated him caused him to hide from the man of God. 
Now, I believe Scripture gives us these little bitty nuggets because the Bible says that, that some of Saul's donkeys ran away. And so he goes to his servant and to his son Kish and his son Saul. And he says, I want you to take now the servant and I want you to go and find my donkeys. And so the Bible says that they passed through Mount Ephraim and they passed through the land of Shalisheh and they passed through uh, the place of Shalim. And the Bible says they found them not. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. Now listen in verse 5 of chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. And when they were come to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant that was with him, Come and let us return, lest my Father, leave caring about the asses. What was he saying? Dad's not worried about me. This is what Dad's focus is on. Uh, I've been gone several days, and he's probably not worried about what happened to me. He's worried about his investment. He's worried about what he trained me to take care of. He's worried about his his wealth and his power. And unless he stopped worrying about all that and start worrying about me, here's the first sign that Kish had implanted in his son Saul. Uh, you're not the priority here. Uh, you're not important. Uh, what's important uh, is the job to be done. Uh, what's important uh, is the wealth that I've acquired. Uh, what's important uh, is the power and the influence of the man I am. Uh, and only when that is gone uh, are you uh, the center of my attention. Saul says uh, that, that when Dad realizes uh, that we've been gone this long. He's finally going to say, well, I guess I ought to be concerned about my boy. Saul knew that. Now, how did he know that? Because he had lived with Kish long enough uh, that he understood what was important to him. Uh, more important than his children was those donkeys. Uh, more important was make, taking care of the family, was making sure everything out there was taken care of. Uh, amen. And so Saul came up with this idea that I'm not the priority here. Uh, and I'm not important to dad. I know I'm implying a lot here, uh, but the scripture gives us these little insights uh, because the the next insight that we get uh, is in the next verse uh, because the servant says, let's inquire of the man of God in this city. The first sign is that Saul knows that the donkeys are more important than he is. The second sign of the influence of Kish in his life was that Saul did not even know the city that he was at. The servant knew that in this city is a man of God. Saul didn't know that. Saul didn't know what the itinerary of the man of God was because that wasn't important to Kish. He may have never told his son, we don't, we don't like the man of God. I, I don't know about... He may have never said one thing, but he never said anything good about him either. He never elevated the ministry and the prophetic role that Samuel played. And so Saul just thought, well, I guess he's not important. I don't know where he is. I don't even know who he is. He said, well, who is this man of God? 
Well, Samuel, he's here. And, and, and we, can, we can go to him and we can uh, inquire of him. Now, I know I'm really stretching this, all right? <laughs> but the next thing Saul said was, we don't have anything to give him. Now, I just wonder if they'd been sitting around at home and Kish said, Oh, that's Samuel. All he ever wants is what you can give him. Samuel won't ever come and prophesy anything for you unless you give him a little something. That man of God, he's always wanting. He's wanting you to come to prayer meeting. He's wanting you to come to revival service. He's wanting you to give in the offering. He's wanting you to give to missions. He's wanting you to be faithful in your tithe and your offerings. He's wanting you to get involved in outreach and in Sunday school and in the choir. He, can you believe he wants us to go to a men's conference on a Friday night and Saturday morning? I don't know what the conversations were, but I do know that Kish did not make the ministry and the place of the ministry priority in Saul's life. And I believe that shows up in Saul because when Saul becomes king, the ministry is not important. The place of the ministry in his life is not important. The influence of Samuel upon him is not important. How did he get these ideas I present to you and propose to you tonight that Saul was influenced by his father in what was important and where his priorities should lie. He may have never said a word, but he told by example that Saul more important than sacrifice is making sure your donkeys are in good health more than sure than making sure you know who the man of God is make sure you know how to take care of donkeys more important than having an offering to give make sure you know how to take care of donkeys make sure you know how to get them in the stalls and make sure you know how to look them over and make sure they're healthy and take care of their problems and their wounds and feed them and he got so focused on training on donkeys and making them the priority uh, that he missed uh, influencing that boy uh, in the priorities that ha- could have caused him to be a great example to an entire nation of people. Instead, when Saul gets in a position of power, all that influence starts showing up. Uh, and Saul says, well, the man of God ain't here. I'll do the sacrifice myself. Uh, and the man of God said to kill all the Amalekites. But, you know, uh, who is he? Uh, I can do this. I'm the king. Uh, and I can over." step my bounds uh, I'm not I, I don't think Saul is all to blame I know he's responsible for his own actions and I know that he could have transitioned and he could have submitted himself to Samuel and he could have survived if he would have let Samuel become his influence but it's not all on the shoulders of Saul. Saul had become the man that his influence had trained him to be. And, and, and I'm seeing in the apostolic movement, now just let me preach without qualifying every statement, but in the apostolic movement, I'm seeing a generation that's coming up who are becoming the men that they have been influenced to be. 
Some things that used to be important aren't important. It's not because of this generation. It's because of the men who had influence in their life didn't put that as a priority in their own life and show by example that this is the way you ought to live. This is how you ought to be. This is the direction you ought to go. I don't care what's going on tonight. It's revival service. I don't care if we had it three weeks in a row. We're going back to church tonight. And he don't. you don't have to say a word. You just tell them, get dressed. We're going to church. It's church time. We're going to support the church. We're going to support the ministry. We're going to support what God's doing. Now, I think it's good. You need to, and I, I, I'm not preaching to fathers and sons here tonight. I'm preaching because I, I made the statement in the very beginning. Well, we're in a generation where we're getting people in our churches uh, that broken homes and, and all kinds of situations uh, where you uh, are having an influence on other people uh, that are not your biological children, uh, but they're watching you. Uh, and when the, when the preacher preaches, uh, amen, I don't want to repeat everything he said tonight, uh, but when the preacher preaches, uh, that little bus kid's watching you. Uh, and when you sit there and you don't respond it's influencing that well I guess they don't really think that I guess they're not really behind that I guess they don't really believe that I guess that's not a priority in their life and I know I know there are some manly things we need to hand down I understand that I got a 10 year old son and he he just—he's hilarious. In his room right now, at home, he has—he's going to be very upset at me for telling this, but he has a Ziploc bag, and in that Ziploc bag, he's got an old ribbon tube, little cardboard tube, without the ribbon on it, you know. And in that tube, he's got matches and toilet paper to start a fire if he needs it. He calls it his survival kit. He's got band-aids in there and alcohol rubs in there. He's got all kinds of little stuff in there. He said, Dad, if anything ever happens, we're going to make it. I think you ought to teach them some things. Amen. Encourage them uh, to get outdoors. Amen. Uh, encourage them uh, to fish and hunt uh, and show them how to fix a motorcycle and a two-cycle engine and a four-cycle engine uh, and, and show them uh, all these things, how to throw a ball and catch a ball and, and all this stuff. But I'm going to tell you there's a place where you go too far where you train them uh, how to ride a horse, uh, but they don't know how to be faithful to the house of God. And you can say they're a manly man, uh, but when the preacher gets to preaching on holiness, uh, they sit down and say, well, daddy never backs that, uh, and daddy never says anything about that. Uh, and I watch that man over there, and he never gets up. I, I don't want to take advantage of my place tonight. I want to say we are entering into a place in the apostolic movement uh, where we have a generation of young men, uh, whether they're your sons or your Sunday school class or your youth group, uh, that know more about this world uh, than they know about God. Somebody has got to stand up and say, uh, sports uh, is not the altar at which we bow.
I do not I did not come tonight to pick fights and be ugly. But I'm telling you, I am a heart sick at a generation that can think. I thank God we don't have church on Sunday night because I'm so enamored with sports. I can go to the local sports bar and watch it. Or I can go to the game. Why are they like that? Because somebody is saying that's more important than assembling together in the house of God. Lifting up your hands in worship. Don't you dare go to a stadium, high school, little league, or pro and get on your feet and clap. And go to a church where the Holy Ghost is moving and you can't dance and you can't clap and you can't run. You are telling another generation this is a priority and this isn't. I'm preaching to you about the influence of a man. Don't leave it to the women to influence your children to pray and to worship and to fast. Let them see the men of the church laying on their face, traveling in the Holy Ghost. Let it send a message to them. This is a priority. I guess I'm preaching uh, uh, an experience. I'm preaching what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a generation that can quote to you stats, but they can't tell you why we believe what we believe. And we've got fathers and we've got men who come to church. And I'm, I'm not... I'm just telling you, they come to church and talk about the football pools. And they talk about the standings. They're sitting in prayer before service and talking about who won that afternoon. Instead of getting on their face and saying to the next generation, this is the priority. If we want the young men to pray, then we men have to pray. Come on, if we... You can be seated. I grew up in a generation. Brother Alexander's son went to my home church. And you always knew when the Holy Ghost was about to move because Brother Jackie Alexander... You kind of laugh because not many of your churches have those kind anymore. Mine included. That when the hope, they're not ashamed to step out in the aisle. They're 40 and 50 years old, but they're not ashamed. They're a man's man, but they can step out in the aisle and say, Woo! They're not ashamed. You know what it said to me in my younger generation? It said, My God, I want to grow up and be anointed and a worshiper. I want to grow up and not be ashamed in the middle of church to step out and let the world and say, Amen! I'm going to move off of this point. I want my son to grow up and know how to fish and hunt and and, and be a man. But I want him to know what it is to let tears run down his face and not be 
ashamed and not feel like a sissy or a wimp, but to know this is God moving on me. And I'm not intimidated to let the world know because I've seen my daddy do it. And I've seen the men in the church back him up and do it. And I've been influenced. This is the way to go. Come on, lift your hands and love the Lord right now. <laughs> I didn't come to be ugly tonight. I hope it's not coming across. I've come to help somebody. Brother Townley already said it. Uh, maybe your walk with God has slipped a little bit. Uh, and you've started letting some... Not, I'm not talking about big things. You don't have a big old 72 inch on your wall. And sports is your God that you have. But just little things creeping in. Uh, and the influence level is kind of shifting. Uh, and maybe your children and other young men, young ladies in the church are noticing. Uh, man, he's, this must be a bigger priority. One more thing and I promise to move on. I don't, the other thing that I'm seeing that disturbs me is that we men need to take responsibility for. And boy, I can get in real trouble for this. Is I'm seeing the spotlight put on career at the expense of being used of God. God bless you. Can be seen. I think we ought to be everything we can be. I think every young man, every young lady ought to go as high as they can go. But I tell our young people at home, I said, I want you to go as far as you can go and hang on to Jesus. But the minute you start letting Jesus slip, that's your limit. That didn't go over very well. But that's the way I preach it. If you can be a doctor and hold on to Jesus, do it. If you can be a lawyer and hold on to Jesus, do it. But if you can only get this high before you start having to let go of Jesus to keep going, there's your limit. Don't go any further because it's not worth it. I'm going to tell you tonight, like Brother Townley said, maybe, maybe you've been one of those that, that has been under the influence of a wrong kind of influence and the priorities in your life are out of whack and, and, and things that should be important are not important and things that really aren't important seem to take the preeminence in your life. Uh, I'm going to tell you, you can make your mind up tonight. It's changing. I'm not going to be that man. I'm going to be the kind of man that influences somebody else to be a worshiper, to be a prayer warrior, to be faithful. I was telling Brother Haddon today, we were talking about my father. My father turned 80 years old Christmas Eve, December the 24th. People say, what's the one thing that stands out in your mind about your father? I don't have to think about it. Instantly, it's faithfulness. My mother died when I was 10. My dad was in the prime of his ministry. I'm not going to tell you all the story, but it was just, it was a rough few years. But we never missed a prayer meeting. 
We never miss church. My dad never said, I'm in so much sorrow, we can't go to church. You know what he was telling us? Uh, this is important. Life has ups and it has downs. It has disappointments. But nothing takes the place of the preeminence of God in your life. He didn't say it with words. He said it with the way he lived his life and his actions. There was another Benjamite. He had the same lineage. In fact, there are Differing views of opinion according to how you interpret the scripture. But let me just lay it before you and you can decide. But his name was Mordecai. If you look at his lineage in the King James Bible, it looks like there's two prominent, three prominent names in his lineage. Shimei, Kish, and Benjamin. If you look at outside biblical sources that give a, a supposedly complete lineology or genealogy of Mordecai, uh, it, it takes it back through uh, the lineage uh, of Benjamin, right through Saul's lineage. Others uh, believe that this is a different Kish uh, that was also of the same name. Uh, it really doesn't matter because they came from the same tribe. But this one name catches my attention, and it's Shimei. Because some, half of the group believes that this is the Shimei uh, that stood up against David when he fled for his life against Absalom and cursed him and spit at him and threw stones at him. All of that vengeance that was bottled up in the tribe of Benjamin uh, came out uh, in a display in Shimei. And some historians, uh, uh, their opinion is that David would not let Shimei be killed because he thought and he perceived that there's something still left for Benjamin. There's something still in this lineage that we want to uphold. We know that later, after he was an old man, that Solomon was told that one of his priorities was to, to get rid of Shimei. But Jewish history, one side of the fence... Uh, says that this same Shimei uh, is a great-great-grandfather uh, to this man Mordecai. Others believe it's a different man. But if it's the same man, then you have to agree with me uh, that there was a lot of bitterness in that man. Uh, we know that later he came and fell down at the feet of David and repented. Uh, but, but he was just saving his own neck. And that's a story for another day. Uh, but here he was, this man full of wrath and all of the bitterness of Benjamin coming out in him uh, and spewing out uh, against David and his uh, uh, apparent taking of the throne. Uh, and so this is the kind of man uh, that Mordecai comes from. Uh, and this is the kind of man uh, that, that, that uh, is his, in his lineage. Uh, and the same spirit of Benjamin, uh, that, that God's way uh, is not the priority. And, and God's plan is not the priority. Uh, but somehow, someway, uh, when you arrive at Mordecai, uh, you arrive at a man uh, that says, I am not going uh, to be that kind of man. I am not going to let 
that kind of influence uh, be the dominant influence in my life. Uh, but I uh, am going to submit to God's plan uh, and God's purpose. Uh, and I am going to rise above uh, the influence of those uh, who would have influenced me in a different direction. Uh, and I'm going to get under the influence uh, of Almighty God. Uh, and here is a man uh, that could have been bitter uh, and could have been full of hate. Uh, he's in Babylon. He's in captivity. Uh, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. It's no nothing uh, but heartache and failure and hurt. Uh, but in the midst of all of that, uh, Mordecai stands up uh, and says, Esther, uh, I've got to influence her. Uh, she is the key here. Uh, and if all I have is bitterness, uh, then all Esther's going to be uh, is bitterness. Uh, and all I have is hatred. Uh, all Esther is going to be is hatred. Uh, and if all I do is spew out venom uh, about Haman and what he's doing, uh, then that's all Esther is going to have. Uh, but I've got to let Esther know, uh, you're bigger than that. Uh, you're better than that. Uh, you have come to the kingdom uh, for just this time. Uh, and I've got to influence you uh, in the right direction. Uh, because if I don't, uh, when your time comes, uh, you won't be equipped uh, to fulfill. I hope uh, that on the shoulders of some men tonight, uh, settles the weight uh, that there's a generation coming after us uh, that if we don't influence them in the right way uh, when they come to their time uh, they won't be equipped to take the step into manhood hallelujah Give me a few more minutes. I don't even know how long I've been preaching. What's it mean to be an influence? As I mentioned earlier, to be an influence, you don't even have to exert much effort. You just cause something without any direct or apparent effort. You just live. It's the effect of one person on the other. It's the effects of a life lived and witnessed. So what are people seeing in your life and in my life? Some of us sit here tonight and say, well, I don't have to worry about that. I'm not a person of influence. Yes, you are. Nobody can escape being an influence, good or bad. Because you really don't even have to do anything. Just live. And by where you place your priorities, those coming behind you are influenced. One way or the other. I don't want to be a man of influence that constantly spews out hatred. I don't want to be an influence in anyone's life that questions the man of God. I thank God for a pastor that beat into my spirit. Let God handle his ministry. He didn't call you to be a judge of another man's motives. And I have found out in my short life when I take my hands off, say, God, you're in control. He can deal with things a lot better than I can. And 
And I, Brother Townley, you pull my coat if I get out of line. But I want to help a man here tonight. And I want to tell you, God didn't put you in that church to keep that pastor in line. And God didn't put you in that church to influence those young men uh, that they have some kind of power or authority uh, over that man of God. And I got to praying about this and thinking about this. And my mind went to another man that the Bible says of him, I have called him by name. The Bible says I have called him by name and I have given him the spirit of a craftsman. Bezalel, the son of your eye. Son of her. See, that name rings a bell. Why did Bezalel get chosen? Why did God call him by name? Because he had been influenced in the right direction. He had a grandfather that knew what it was to find his place and back up what God was doing. He didn't get intimidated uh, to come under the shadow of Aaron uh, and come under the shadow of Moses like Korah did. Uh, Korah got under their shadow uh, and he couldn't handle it uh, because he wanted to be the one on top. Uh, But here is a man uh, who didn't get offended uh, because God put him under uh, instead of over. uh, And he understood his place uh, and he taught his son uh, who in turn taught his son by a lifestyle uh, and a spirit and a disposition that it is no little thing to be put under instead of over. But when you find your place to be put under, get your hands under the arm of the man and lift it as high as you can lift it. You say, what are you talking about? Uh, when the Amalekites came out to attack Israel and Rephim, uh, the Bible says that Moses got Joshua and said, we're going to attack. Uh, and he went up on a mountain and he sat down on a rock. Uh, and you know the story, when his hands were lifted, they prevailed. Uh, when he dropped them, uh, the Amalekites prevailed. Uh, and the Bible says uh, that Aaron and her, one on either side, when Moses got weary, when his influence was waning, and he could not quite get it back to where it needed to be to move Israel forward. Brother Copeland, there were some men that said he's still the man, and we want his influence to reign. And we're not ashamed that we're under him. We're not ashamed that we are holding him up because I won't her and I want Bezalel to know I'm not too good to hold up and support what God is doing and God said that's the kind of boy I want to build my altar and build my labor and design my tapestries I want a boy that's been influenced that God's program and God's plan is priority
I'm looking around tonight and I see some Bezaleels here. I see some young men with powerful potential. And I think, God, there's some hers here tonight who are influencing. You may not be saying a word, but by being at men's conference tonight, you are telling them this is important. We're supporting what God's doing. We're holding up the hands of the ministry. We're support. We are not too big to get under so that God can accomplish. Give me just a few more minutes. I'm going to hurry to a close. I really am. I really am. If I can help one man here tonight to understand that missing pre-service prayers is, may not be a big deal to you. the influence of when the pastor says we're going to build a new building. I don't see why that's necessary. But being that man that says you know what? If this is what God's doing this is what we're doing. And you don't even have to say it. It's just by showing up the pre-service prayer uh, and getting into the flow of the Spirit. Uh, and just when the pastor says, we're going to build, uh, you're on your feet. Uh, I know I'm repeating some things already said, uh, but you're on your free- feet saying, yes, uh, yes, uh, yes. What you're saying to everybody around you and every young man and young lady is, uh, get behind God's vision. Uh, get behind what God's doing. Hold up the hand. We don't talk about him at all. I don't know if I've ever heard him even talked about. You can be seated. But what a man Elisha's father must have been. To watch your son burn what you've taught him to do. I don't know what kind of man he was, Brother Fox, but he must have been quite a man to teach Elisha. I don't know how. I don't know when. But if you ever feel it, stop what you're doing and go after it. Instead of, you don't want to be a preacher. What? A missionary? But somewhere that father told Elisha, Son, I don't know if it'll ever happen. But just if it ever did, and Elijah ever came by, you have my blessing to follow God. And I've always been struck by the fact that Elisha was doing what he had been trained to do by his father. Plowing the family field. 
I'm following in daddy's footsteps. I'm making daddy proud. I've learned how to plow with 12 yoke of oxen. Daddy ought to feel good. I'm taking up the family business. I'm fulfilling daddy's dreams. I saved all this money to send you to college. Boy, you're not going to ruin it by going off being a preacher. You're not going to ruin it by by giving yourself more to the church. And, And one day, you know the story, he's out there plowing. Doing, making daddy proud. And all of a sudden, the elder passed by Elijah and just set the mantle on Elijah. Didn't say a word. He just put the mantle on him. And Elisha had been trained enough that he understood he didn't have to say anything. And I'm, I'm amazed. When, when Elisha ran to Elijah, he didn't say, what's, what's this mean? What's this mean? He didn't say that. Uh, what did what'd he do? He ran to Elijah and he said, Oh, Master, uh, I'm gonna, I'll be back. Uh, I'm going to go. I love this. Uh, I read it again today. He said, I'm going to go kiss uh, my father and my mother. I'm going to go thank them. Uh, thank you uh, that you taught me right. Uh, thank you uh, that your influence was right. Uh, thank you uh, that you didn't belittle this. Uh, that you didn't send me down. Thank you. I can come to you and tell you what happened. Uh, and you won't say, no, no, go back and plow. Uh, but you're going to say, go. Uh, go. Uh, be what God wants you to be. Uh, accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. You can remain standing. Musicians can help us. I could preach a lot longer. But I... But not only did he feel comfortable kissing his father. And, and the Bible specifically says father first. He said, I want to go kiss my father and mother. Brother Copeland, that's not all he did. He didn't take the team to the barn and unhook the plow and say, I'm going to leave them here in case it don't work out. I've always got dad's situation to fall back on. No. He broke up the plow. And he killed the oxen. And he boiled the oxen on the fire of the plow. And he kissed his father. And he kissed his mother. Thank you for the influence. And he walked out of that home to follow the man of God. And I believe what gave Elisha the strength to do it was standing on that porch with tears running down their face. Was a mom and a dad saying, Yeah, son. You go, son. You're not going to be the superstar except in God's eyes. Go. Too many of my generation, 40 something generation, are trying to relive broken dreams through their children.
trying to push them to become the next this and the next that and the next that. But oh, the peace of a home and a church where a young person can stand and say, I feel the call of God. And they feel secure because they know in that church are men that are going to say yes. They're not going to come to them after church and say, look, I don't, that, do you really know anything about ministry? No, they're going to say, I'm proud of you. You're doing it. Go, be what God wants you to be. I'm going to tell you, you're going to have to endure the ridicule of your peers. You're going to have to endure the ridicule of family members that don't get it and don't understand and don't grasp it. But that's okay as long as you have some people in your life that are influencing you and saying, come on, you can do this. This is the way to go. This is the direction. But I can't let you go tonight without reminding all of us that none of us can properly influence others if we are not willing to be properly influenced ourselves. And Brother Fox, the greatest man that ever lived, should have preeminence in our life. Jesus Christ ought to be able to prod us, influence us. God, you're not happy with me doing that? Okay, I never heard the pastor preach against that, but okay, God, I feel you pushing me in that direction. You, you, you want me to pray an extra day at the church than my regular routine? Okay, God, you want me to fast, you want me to whatever. And by your willingness to surrender to the influence of Christ, you don't have to say a word. You will influence those behind you to follow in your footsteps. I have a family member and I hope he doesn't get upset with me for using him as a illustration here tonight. I'm not going to use his name or even his relationship to me. He has three children. Two boys and a girl. Both of the boys are apostolic preachers. They're young men, not the, the young men. And the daughter is working for God, anointed, being used of God. But he doesn't have any ministers in his family. Never been a, a preacher. But he's been faithful. Work hard, take the kids to church, take them to prayer meeting, get involved, be a worker at the church. And one thing I've never heard him do is belittle the calling that they were hearing. He's a big man to me because he's lived under his whole life. But his influence to his children were, you can rise above. And if you ever hear a call, daddy won't pull you back. I just wonder tonight in this congregation how many men there are that you're examining your life right now. And you're saying, God, 
2015 is going to be a different year. And God, if I have ever in any action of my life sent a message to the next generation that things that are important to you are not a priority to me, God, help me change. I I would like to preach and conclude tonight with a great shout, but I don't feel that's what the Holy Ghost would have. I feel like there are some key men in some key churches in this house tonight that God is calling you to a ministry of influence. And the generation that's coming up is looking for men who know how to pray and worship and sacrifice and give. And and, and, and I, I, I don't want to cross any paths tonight of pastors that are here But I feel like there are some key men in the churches represented here tonight that maybe you haven't quite been to that level. And and it's been easy for things to pull you away from focus and attraction of Him. And you don't even realize that your actions are being noticed by others. But tonight somewhere the Word of God has struck a note. And you've recognized as Brother Townley has so ably set the tone for this meeting that God is trying to strengthen your affirmation and your influence. And you're big enough of a man to step out of your chair and say, God, if I'm the only one, I'm going to an altar tonight. And I'm going to let the influencer of all influencers press on me. And God, when I go home, I want my pastor to say, Man, I've never seen him be so faithful. I've never seen him be so prayerful. I've never seen him be so committed. I'm going to tell you, you can build a next generation and strengthen that generation by nothing more than your actions. <laughs> Come on, make up your mind. I'm not going to be kish. I'm not going to let my influence be such that the priorities are out of place in the next generation. I want to be that man that will hold the hands of the ministry. I want to learn to be under. Come on, I really feel like there's some key men here tonight that God wants to do something in your heart before you leave here tonight. God wants to make you into the man He desires you to be. Say, I can't speak, I can't teach, I can't, you don't have to just live the life. That's what I'll be. And let it influence others. Come on, pray one for another. Let the body of Christ strengthen. Pray for a brother next to you tonight. God, help us to be the man you want us to be. God, strengthen our hands. 
strengthen our faithfulness, strengthen our affirmation, strengthen our faith in God and what you do. That's what I'll be. I will be what you want me to be. And I'll say yes, Lord, I agree. My Say